This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Abel. We're here today with Dr. Bill Nance. Welcome. Hello. And we have a couple of very special visitors from the Royal Dutch Army with us today. So, gentlemen, if you could introduce yourselves. Sure. I'm uh, Assistant Professor Jaros Muller, a historian uh, at the Dutch Army, currently uh, teaching on uh, modern-day doctrine and uh, history. Um, and next to me is my colleague, uh, Marco Middelwijk. Yeah, uh, Marco Middelwijk. I'm a uh, military historian. Uh, we're working uh, exactly for the Royal Dutch Army, a um, bigger part of the Institute, uh, the Netherlands Institute for Military History. And uh, yeah, we, we are um, yeah, broadening uh, up history for, uh, for, for public, but also for the military itself. Okay, uh, I'm going to start with uh, what might seem like a very dumb question, which is, your country has lots of different names. <laughs> right. So, explain to us the difference between the Netherlands, Holland, uh, earlier the United Provinces, or the Dutch Republic. Um, you call yourselves Dutch, so explain how all that works. <laughs> well, this can take an hour, but let me, uh, <laughs> let me try to do it briefly. Um, Holland... Uh, as a lot of people uh, used to call it, is actually just the two biggest provinces of the Netherlands. So two of them, North Holland and South Holland, which consist uh, the capital, which is Amsterdam. But then there's also the political capital in the southern uh, part of, of Holland, which is The Hague, and the second biggest city in the Netherlands, which is Rotterdam. Um, uh, and then there's, of course, the rest of the country. Um, uh, and combined everything, like the two Hollands, and the rest of it is called the Netherlands uh, these days. But of course it hasn't always been this way. Uh, back in the days in the 17th century, the Netherlands was a little bit bigger than it is today. Uh, Belgium was attached to it, and uh, it was divided up into uh, a lot more provinces, and that was called, uh, well, the Netherlands or the 17th provinces, actually. Mm -hmm. Or the Low Countries. Or the Low Countries, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I yeah. mean, a lot of people know that we're below service. Of the, like, quite a lot of the, the services, actually. But, but technically, the Netherlands is the correct name for our country. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Holland is, uh, we get it, but... Mm -hmm. I'm from Utrecht, so I would say uh, no Holland. <laughs> right, and I'm from Holland, so there we go. Yeah. <laughs> right, and and it's it's the the um, the kingdom of the Netherlands is the technical name, correct? Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So, um, what are you doing here? What What are you doing in a U.S. Army facility, and and how does that relate to your work back with your army? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we know you guys because we in the army we send some uh, of our best and brightest officers to uh, to your institute here. Uh, so it's a good opportunity to finally see what they're doing here, uh, but that's one of the reasons. The other reason is that we are teaching military history kind of in the same way you guys are doing. Uh, how does that look like? Um, we are not teaching uh, history in a way that you've been taught at university to train historians. No, like you guys, we're educating officers. And we use military history as a tool to get better understanding of where did our doctrine come from, and uh, leadership issues, 
Um, and all those kind of broad uh, themes that you can uh, explain in a very good way by using history. Now, as a, for instance, our uh, history curriculum, we typically start just prior to uh, Napoleon. So we talked the Frederican era during that time frame. And then we move forward generally through a Western European scope until we hit the Second World War, and then we transition into a very American-focused curriculum. So how does that compare to what you all do uh, over in the Netherlands? Yeah, well, I actually heard, and I'm a little bit proud of it, that you guys start with uh, Maurice. Uh, yes, Moritz of Nassau. Uh, uh, Maurice of Nassau. So it all starts with the Dutch here. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we do kind of s similar things. Uh, we start with Napoleonic Wars. And the lessons that you can derive from that, of course, uh, from Clausewitz, his way of looking at the Napoleonic Wars, then in Germany. So roughly kind of doing the same things. And then uh, First World War, um, uh, and then the area between the First and Second World War is quite important for us, because that is like the breeding ground of the modern, or the, the, the German doctrine that was used in the Second World War. But also, when you look at that's my subject, one of my subjects, we look at the Russian way of war, uh, like Tukhachevsky, Esserson, and all these guys. Because mm -hmm. um, this, this is for such a fruitful period when it comes to new ideas of mechanized warfare, mobile, mobilization of warfare. Um, uh, so we look at it uh, from a more European, European perspective, uh, back in, 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 when you look at that area. Then there's Second World War, and then of course there is uh, like our own conflict, mm -hmm. uh, which is the decolonization uh, uh, wars in the in the Indies, and we kind of combine that by looking at counterinsurgency. So we use that as an example of how counterinsurgency was well implemented, or better say, not implemented. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so we use our own history um, uh, quite a lot. And then we move on uh, to well, modern day, more to modern day area. And then we also use Vietnam as an example. We really look at how you guys did in Vietnam, what lessons you're deriving from it, and we use that also as a stepping stone of uh, what you guys call in reforging the broken uh, army. We kind of look to it in the same way. Uh, how did the U.S. Uh, reinvented itself? They got Dupuy, then you got uh, Sterry, our land battle. And then there's Gulf War. We kind of have the same methodology. Why is that? Because as a small country, uh, part of NATO, we rely on the U.S. quite a lot. I mean, that was basically the doctrine in the Cold World War. I mean, we uh, Cold War. Uh, we we our task for the Netherlands was just um, uh, go to Germany, uh, fight fight the Russians in, in in case they would break through the lines and then try to hold them up as long as we can uh, and wait for you guys to come in <laughs> yeah. and help us out. Uh, well, luckily, that never happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but so we needed to look at your doctrine as well because it really you know, has some um, uh, connections to our doctrine as well because back in the Cold War, we used to, you know, the, the, the purpose of the whole idea was to fight together. Um, so that's why the US is really uh, at the focus point as well. Um, but we also look at other countries like Israel, for example. Um, as a small country ourselves, it is really helpful to swift to shift from the U.S. perspective to look at small countries like Israel and how they organize their army um, with the limited amount of people they have and the limited amount of resources they get. It is more or less similar than uh, to our country. 
So we combined it a little. So you, you've raised a bunch of fascinating avenues we can walk down, and I'd like to dive into detail in a couple of them. Um, so let's let's more or less start at the beginning. Uh, as you mentioned, the Netherlands is a, is a relatively small country, and yet it has a large and dynamic history. So if we want to go all the way back, we've got this mysterious people we know as the, the Frisians, yeah. um, and then, of course... The, the, the Netherlands is in this kind of quasi-Romanized state. Mm -hmm. it's, it's got Roman influence, but it's not really part of Rome. Um, and then you've got the, the whole medieval period where you've got Carolingians, you've got Germans. The Netherlands is fortunately or unfortunately a crossing point for lots of these big empires. Right. And then, of course, the Netherlands stands up on its own as a rebellious part of the Spanish Empire. Yeah. Um, it becomes the United Provinces of the Dutch Republic officially in 1648. Uh, then it kind of gradually grows into being a monarchy, which is officially established mm -hmm. in 1814, including Belgium. 13 years ago. Right. And then, and then it's got a, a, a history both that's colonial, as you mentioned, and then a 19th and 20th century history that's not always happy. Mm -hmm. Right, as you mentioned during uh, the Second World War in particular. Yeah. So given all of this history, given all of the, the, the historical examples you might draw from, how do you pull that into the modern Dutch experience, into the modern Dutch army? How do you use all of that history? Well, it is a bit of cherry-picking once, uh, <laughs> because there's so much uh, to pick from, uh, of course. Uh, but we, uh, the starting point is not history, the starting point is doctrine. So, for example, when we look at uh, things we want to incorporate in our army, for example, uh, the kind of uh, desired way of leadership, um, uh, of avoiding attrition, uh, using maneuver, using uh, those kind of command types of styles, uh, we, we, look, we look at our, our own history and see, hey, let's 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 go back to May 1940. Let's go um, investigate how how the Germans uh, invaded our country, which of course not a, not a happy history, <laughs> but it is a, a useful history because then we can dive deep in. Hey, how did it do that? How how did it, how how were they so mobile? How how was it possible that they surprised us, the French and all the other allies, by penetrating that deep into the uh, uh, into the Netherlands that fast? How can we learn from that? Now, is this a thematic approach you take then, or is it, or you take it chronologically and you hit those points as you come to that point in the chronology? Uh, you can also not go too far back in history because <coughs> otherwise the students will not relate to it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly, the Second World War for, is that way more relatable. So, uh, but do you but do you cover it like you kind of start at the beginning, or you kind of have a start point and work your way forward, or you just kind of uh, hit the thematic points? It's uh, more thematic based. Yeah. It's okay. More and the good thing is, uh, if I explain this in class in classroom, I, I can say, hey, next week we'll, we'll go we'll go on a bus and we'll like like what like one hour drive, and we're at the Gebberg, which is like the, the the place where the Germans really broke through our, our lines. Jealous about that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rather not, but uh, <laughs> no, no, yeah. Well, that's that's an interesting uh, experience. Uh, back in May 1940, yeah. we had our last defensive line uh, for again defending Holland, which is, uh, and Marco might be <laughs> disagreeing with me. But it's like the most important part of the Netherlands uh, because you know, uh, fortress our, Holland. Yeah, it's a fortress Holland, and there was line one line last of defense uh, on a relatively high hill compared to. Uh, the rest of the country. Uh, so this is where uh, we had to conquer or defeat the Germans um, before they would enter uh, Holland. 
and that went utterly wrong. Now, so how we work is we are one of five departments, uh, teaching departments in the college, and then there's a distance department as well that runs our part. So we're one, and actually we're a fairly small department within the college. Are, are you organized the same way where you have a history department and then you have a doctrine department or a joint department? Is it similar process? Yeah, exactly the same, yeah. So we're really uh, uh, integrated as well. Uh, we have this discussion with our tactical uh, uh, tutors uh, as well. and. And we, we, uh, we're making this program all together. So they're more, of course, uh, focused on the tactical level, operational level. But they look at us as, hey, I've got this problem here. I want to um, talk about deep operations. Um, what are the best historical examples for that? Can you elaborate in my class a little about this? And so we can, we can drive um, uh, the theory coming out of history when you look, for example, at the Russians. Now, how big, when you say your classes, how big are your classes that you're talking to? I know it's quite big here in the Institute, though, quite overwhelmed by the <laughs> size of it. Uh, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you go look at the Netherlands, the class I'm teaching, at the level you guys are doing, it's just 25 people a year. Uh, 25 across the across army. Across the army, yeah. As yeah. opposed to our around 1,100. Exactly. Right. exactly. It's a very interesting comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about some of the, the aspects of history that you're talking about. Um, let's dive down a little bit more on the World War II experience, right? Um, and I, I'll be honest, we don't talk about the Dutch experience in World War II because mm -hmm. for our purposes, it's a very short uh, yeah. campaign, right? Um, it's kind of the north end of the 1940 campaign for right. us. Yeah. So it's the flank of the flank of the flank. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned kind of this, the, the failure of the Dutch. Um, and, and if we're being honest, I, I think the way we might look at it is there's not much the Dutch could have done given yeah. the, the might of the, the German military at that point. So what do you do with that? What do you do with the lessons uh, of the 1940 defeat given what the Netherlands is and where it fits in Europe at that time? Yeah, I think you can look at it at several levels. Uh, for example, if you look at it at a tactical level, uh, the thing is, we kind of copied the French doctrine back in the 20s and the 30s. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they kind of won. And of course, you, 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 you pick the doctrine from the winner side. And that, that doctrine was heavily uh, attrition and fire focused. Uh, and then of all, of course, th there were the Germans with their heavy mobilized uh, um, uh, units. And we were there fighting the last war. We were fighting a First World War while we're in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the way of looking at it. So uh, adding maneuver, adding flexibility to your pro, to your to your doctrine is one of the lessons we can derive from that. So that's a tactical level. But uh, once you look at it on a from a, um, a strategical level, one of the other lessons is um, uh, working together with other countries. Right. I mean, back then there was no NATO, there was no U.S. to help us, but also um, uh, no other really good um, uh, countries to, to, to come and help us. Now, there were some, some talks with the French, uh, and they kind of promised us to help us, but it was not on paper, no common doctrine, no practices together. No, but because strategically we had a big problem because we, we, we stayed out of the First World War, right? We were neutral. So we were hoping that we could do that again. Mm -hmm. And uh, so therefore, exactly what Jan said, is like we, we also didn't want to get on with alliances with other countries formally because then we would 
choose a side and mm-hmm. we'll be vulnerable. So that's also what's mixing up our strategy. So on the one hand, you knew like, yeah, the threat is coming from the east, from us, uh, Germany. But on the other hand, yeah, we cannot do it officially. So you get really weird, uh, unofficial, uh, um, yeah, I say, you, 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 you cannot make really uh, tactics together, strategy together. Mm-hmm. You yeah. can't really tie in the defense because, I mean, there's right. actually a really good place to do that. Right. And then you end up with the fact that the Belgians, the Dutch, exactly. and the French all have plans that sort of yeah. line up. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But Formally. no one's practicing. <laughs> no, no. No, so there we are on our own, yeah. uh, and this is one on the strategic level the importance of of being a reliable partner in an alliance, uh, and it works both ways. Of course, is really a lesson we uh, well we took, and actually you can you can you can um, expand this lesson all the way to modern day, where we're quite an active contributor to uh, to NATO. Uh, these days, uh, like we were in Afghanistan, we worked with the U.S. Uh, together, uh, but also in Ukraine uh, these days. Even as a small country, we we're like on the, one of the top countries that provide um, military equipment for Ukraine. These these are all things that basically has a, has their roots in in history. And um, uh, the lesson is well, you can't stay neutral, no. right? You, in order to survive as a small country, uh, you got to fit into one of those alliances. And that's NATO. Well, and it's a very interesting point that I think uh, maybe maybe one worth dwelling on for a minute. Uh, you know, the Netherlands, of course, has its own native Dutch culture, but I think, as <laughs> as our friend from Utrecht might, might <laughs> think, um, that culture is concentrated in a certain area. Yeah. But it also has a heavily heavy German influence, mm-hmm. right? German language, German culture, as well as having a, a heavy French influence um, yeah. uh, among, you know, the, the minor cultures and languages that exist in the region. So so how, how then do you treat the problem of 1940 or 1935, where you have a country that's been a former French satellite state, has been a part of the German empire in its history? Um, how, how do you treat the question of neutrality, given that it's not necessarily an obvious choice to join, for example, France in 1940? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you, you can see that that uh, we had the doctrine armed neutrality, so in a way it was also quite dubious and something that is also, yeah, I say typical Dutch is that we uh, that goes back for centuries. That we we call it a polar uh, uh, landscape. Uh, this is from polar landscape, so the flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, we 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 uh, negotiate a lot with each other. So uh, there was also a lot of uh, internal conflict. Like, what does this exactly mean? Because it's qu- quite vague. You you're armed. You're arming yourself as a nation, uh, but to maintain neutral. Mm-hmm. Of course, to deter, but uh, also, uh, yeah, it's it's quite. So the, in during the thirties, there was a lot of internal. Uh, conflict uh, and we were trying to negotiate with each other uh, even within the Ministry of War and the Ministry of uh, um, the Minister Presidents and all that so there was a lot of um, yeah um, people uh, w- there was a vague concept of, of uh, what we're going for and that is something that goes back uh, if, y- if you want to study uh, political science, it's very interesting to do the uh, 17th century uh, uh, the Dutch uh, national government because mm-hmm. it's very complicated. There's all these 
organs. It was a republic in that time, but they all were, uh, were talking with each other and, and all layers of, of government in a way that it kind of worked, but in a way also. So th I think that is that is uh, really what's going on in that time in, in the 30s. Uh, well, and this is a very interesting uh, discussion for my period because I'm an early modernist, right? right? right. And the, the it's, it's ironic that we start with Moritz of Nassau because we, we present him as the right. leader of a unified state army. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but the irony, of course, is there is no government. No, no, exactly. And the, it's called the United Provinces right. because it's a group of provinces that sometimes cooperate and often hate each other. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and what, I, if I remember correctly, at no point prior to 1814, the formation of the kingdom, did every single province agree to cooperate in a war? Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, definitely. So it was always, uh, especially in that time uh, uh, before uh, the, the formation of the kingdom, it was 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 uh, a lot of uh, conflict. Where even the two southern states, they were technically uh, yeah, colonial uh, provinces. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, it was it was really uh, really complicated. A lot of fractions going on. Yet the prime minister uh, that was uh, kind of had this. Uh, Stadthouder, that was uh, in conflict with uh, what became the royal family, but mm -hmm. in that time was not. So there was all these fractions that was uh, and was mm -hmm. just that dependent who who had the momentum uh, to to get things done. And there's also 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 competition between uh, the military who want to expand right. to defend themselves and the merchants who wanted to make money. Mm -hmm. And m I think when <laughs> you look at the history, uh, most times the merchants won. Definitely. Uh, one example was a, I think it was a German leader. And he said the Netherlands was not a country; mm -hmm. it, it was an enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this is so. This is yeah. the thing that's really fascinating <coughs> for me. Again, as an early modernist, where you know, post eighteen fourteen, we have a coherent monarchy and a state, and that state plays a, a role in European politics. Uh, perhaps your Belgian neighbors might disagree with <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> uh, and, and, and the reason I say that is, in 1814, the entire Benelux was the Kingdom of the Netherlands, mm -hmm. and there's a war in 1830, and that's when right. we break off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but prior to that, if we talk about the Dutch, if we had this conversation, you know, in 1750, the thought would be land power is, you know, immaterial. What the Dutch are is a trading power, a colonial power, a naval power. Yeah. And the, the great irony is there is no state and there's no military. Mm -hmm. The Dutch Navy is a bunch of merchants right. yeah. who agree to cooperate with each other in wartime. Yeah. So you, you mentioned you kind of, your history kind of starts with World War II. What do you do with that? What do you do in your country with the long tradition of independence, capitalism, um, reform Protestantism, that's an important part of it, and this idea that the Dutch are the trade power at the mouth of the Scheldt, at the mouth of the Rhine, the great Dutch navy that held off the British, held off the French, held off the Spanish. Uh, what does that mean to you now? Uh, it, it is, uh, um, especially now in the last 20, 30 years, uh, um, the, the, the time of the 17th century glory years mm -hmm. was also called the glorious century, uh, the golden century, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, in the, in the perspective of nowadays, it's kind of more, um, I would say, nuanced. They, they're trying to say, uh, that, um, and there was, of course, also slavery, there was, uh, there was expansionism and all, all mm -hmm. those kind of things. So this kind of put more in, 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 in perspective in that way, so to not to think too glorious of, uh, mm -hmm. that's maybe also the Calvinistic uh, kind of culture that is uh, in Holland, like, 
to not uh, beat yourself too much on the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. So uh, yeah, it, it of course it is it's taught and all that, but uh, it's also kind of uh, yeah we're 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 just a few months ago our, our prime minister. Um, gave an official apology on behalf of the government for slavery and mm -hmm. so it's also trying to yeah we're kind of dealing with that still it's still ongoing process in a way of putting things in perspective of course there's this merchant tradition in that in a way is exceptional and is, is, is well, very I mean, they literally built your country right, right. exactly yeah. and then it's also something that brought us a prosperity and all that but on price of what uh, on the cost of what and and yeah to put that more in perspective because of course you can also not just turn away from that, you also have to face it and, and, uh, and, and put it in perspective again. And these pers perspectives are rapidly changing, right, for example, yes. when I was in, in high school, yeah. uh, the, the golden age the was, golden, like, yeah. you know, it was the area we should be proud on. Yeah. And uh, to give you another example, uh, one of the prime ministers yeah, before yeah. this one <laughs> Great. Uh, held, held a speech and he was like, we should be proud of our history again, let's, let's put, in, put in the VOC spirit back, back in our country. Yeah, the East Indian corporation spirit. And he was heavily criticized by, by saying this because people are like, yeah, does that mean we should put back slavery in the country or what, right. or what are we doing here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's fascinating to see how, how the Dutch uh, image uh, of how we look at, at our own history rapidly changes over the years. Well, and that's a, that's, you've opened up a very fascinating discussion and one that's often, I would imagine, uncomfortable. We have these same discussions in America. Right. Uh, to, a, to some degree, because America, of course, is not one of the great European colonizing powers, um, mm -hmm. and we can define great however we want. <laughs> right. um, so how then does your country deal with the history of, for example, you know, not just the, the naval part of it, but a, a, a country that, that made its money by you know, killing lots of people in what is now Indonesia, uh, or fighting a very, a very bloody post-colonial war there mm -hmm. after World War II. Yeah. So how do you, how does your, how does your army, how does your military history department, how do you deal with the more uncomfortable aspects of your country's history? Oh, there, there's been yeah. just a, it's, it's about to finish, we're still going on, yeah, I think. Uh, part of our institute is, uh, had an, uh, in cooperation with two other uh, institutes, uh, they were conducting an, a research of uh, the, uh, the, the colonialization war, mm -hmm. so now called, uh, between 1945 and uh, 49. Um, and and uh, they just published a report, uh, uh, and yeah, they are um, yeah, how we say it? they they uh, with the historical research they they conclude like hey there was uh, structural violence or, or was it incidental? Those those things are keep uh, popping up those questions, and they mm -hmm. uh, actually found out that yeah. quite a lot of atrocities took place. Right, uh, there were rumors about this. People reluctant to speak about this in the out in the open. But uh, like one of our colleagues wrote like a, a, a very uh, elaborated on this very deep dissertation, which you have to do to prove these. Things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And he actually found out that uh, atrocities took place on a much larger scale than we knew before. Uh, this is actually quite interesting because these are new facts that only recently uh, are, are hitting the surface uh, these days. And it's it is still very very sensitive, sensitive because a lot of veterans still walking around yeah. there. Or families I mean, they're off, yeah, you know, families all. I mean, they're they're in their eighties or nineties or even older, but they had they still have a quite of a loud voice, conquering these these historical facts. Mm -hmm. Of course, they all have their own perspective, 
if you if you were a logistician uh, back in the days, mm-hmm. and you were not I- in combat duty, and maybe you were not uh, taking part in those atrocities, so they feel like my history uh, is being taken away from me because I did a good thing back then, and now right. someone's writing about atrocities. And it's the balance of pride of service and pride of country with. The, the bad things that all countries do. Now, is this done in coordination with, say, the Indonesian government and their historical uh, societies themselves, or is this more of the Dutch government, Dutch military perspective? It started uh, from the Dutch military perspective, but we, uh, uh, as an institute, we really went to Indonesia, went to the local sources, spoke to uh, local historians uh, back there, and tried to make it a combined effort. But that is relatively challenging uh, since. Um, the, uh, if you look at it from an Indonesian perspective, the, the dominant perspective is we, we were in a good freedom war, mm-hmm. all right? But of course, if you look at every kind of war, uh, atrocities take place on both sides. And it's right. not like, um, you know, I don't want to mm-hmm. uh, de-emphasize our role in this conflict, but when you look at it from an Indonesian perspective, there are also Things that went badly wrong, uh, things happened there. So they're they're not really eager to dive into this subject too deep because that might, you know, uh, dig up some some dirt as well. Because especially in the uh, nowadays Indonesia is a huge, uh, huge uh, uh, archipelago. Is it? Mm, Yes. Uh, um, it, it is, it's many different cultures, uh, and 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 also what's co- complicating is that a part of the the uh, the colonial forces, the Dutch colonial forces, were indigenous uh, peoples, right. and uh, and many of them they came back to Holland, and they also have their say, and also in Indonesia there are many, uh, uh, yeah, uh, say it, uh, there's a lot of uh, discontent and this uh, mm-hmm. relations that are, are not, um, uh, they don't want to mess up, uh, so that is all sensitive, also there. As well as here. No, broaden it back out just a little right. bit. Uh, so you all are with the Dutch military, yeah, or Dutch army, yeah. Uh, so are you? Uh, how joint are you? Because we have because uh, for this is a United States Army right. Command General Staff College. We have classes on our joint uh, doctrine, naval theory, air theory, but it's predominantly a ground focused institution. Are you all similar? And how does that connect to yeah. what? Yeah. It's quite complicated because uh, our institute, the Netherlands Institute of Military History, uh, has is uh, it started in 2005 after an, uh, an, an I say fusion mm-hmm. of every branch before <coughs> the army, the navy, and uh, the air force. They all had their own historical section, and in 2005 they got all clustered in one institute, mm-hmm. and uh, so that is that's all together. But within that institute, uh, there are several departments. I will not bore you with uh, with those departments, but there's also uh, a cluster of education, military education, and that's what you better can say. What yeah. that, uh, and we're predominantly teaching at the for land forces, uh, but we also teach at the naval uh, academy. So that is a joint. Uh, basically, the whole institute is a joint effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's from my perspective as a teacher, land focused. Okay, so as a so as I understand it correctly, because <laughs> yeah. in the United States, for instance, we have many different departments of history. Yeah, like I taught at the at the United States Military Academy Department of History, but mm-hmm. that is separate and distinct right. from this department here. 
as I understand it, you have one organization that goes out to all the different academies and uh, professional military institutions. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Because, you know, we're such a small country. We, we can't have, like, all those kind of institutions you, you guys have. So we need to... We needed to regroup all this, especially after yeah. some severe budget cuts that we had to go through in the beginning of this century. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Luckily, that's 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 a bygone era because uh, uh, nowadays our budget, annual budget of the MOD, is increased by forty percent thanks mm -hmm. to uh, this guy in uh, Moscow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. what's, he, what's he doing? Right, right. Uh, so finally, we're growing again. Uh, that also counts for the military institute. Now, when you say small, how small is, or how big is your institute, like uh, your group of folks? Yeah, well, the teaching department consists just of four teachers. Yeah. So that is quite small, but then there's... Yeah, there's and I'm happily there because uh, one of the reasons I came here is to learn from you guys, especially with the virtual staff right group, because we have this pilot going on of virtual battlefield tour. So uh, during COVID, uh, many of the tours that uh, Jaus and his colleagues were doing, they were canceled. Right. And we had to, uh, they had to improvise. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can better tell the story of the drone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're just, uh, I had a drone on my own just for making holiday pictures. So I went out to Sedan mm -hmm. in France uh, on one of those occasions that it was possible to travel in Europe for at a maximum of 24 hours. So I drove there, put up the drone, made some image of the battlefield, came back and used this in my classroom. Uh, if we can't go to Sedan, I'll bring Sedan to you. Mm -hmm. um, so this was one of the experiments where uh, like it's a pilot now and it's broadening and we're making our own virtual battlefield tour. That's what we're doing. And there are like 30 other uh, historians uh, who are conducting research. For example, the in Indonesian or Indian research, one of the big research themes we're, uh, we're in. But there's also like another bunch of projects. Uh, and uh, the Historical Institute is also sending out like field historians. I was one of them uh, a couple of years ago. We're going to active missions uh, attached to one of our commanders and write uh, military journals there. I mean, mm -hmm. not for publication, but for internal review mm -hmm. as, a, as a corporate memory for what actually took what was going on. What we would call command history. Yeah, command history. So yeah. I, I was deployed in, uh, in Mali, for example, in North Africa. My colleague Serge was deployed in Afghanistan a couple of times. Mm -hmm. So that's also things we, we, uh, we do. Mm -hmm. And there's another branch that is uh, um, uh, you know, uh, collection management. So a lot of uh, documents, a lot of uh, yeah. journals come in, and we categorize that. And so you have an archival mission. We have well. a, yeah, yeah, we have an yeah. archive, and also one of our missions is quite broad because we do have we conduct scientific research, but also one of the things is that we have to facilitate to the public. Mm -hmm. uh, the Dutch uh, citizens to to facilitate or to to um, say to to enable them to uh, see our, our collection. So digitizing, for example, as yeah. well. Yeah, we're uh, busy doing that. Um, we in America, we're very happy you are. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that means they don't have to get the plane flight over there. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, great. Uh, yeah. Happy to have you over, guys. Yeah. <laughs> we, should, we should stop digitalizing. So unfortunately, yeah. uh, digitization <laughs> has been a godsend for historians yeah. because yeah. it means that we can do research on things that. 
that are in your archives, mm -hmm. and vice versa, mm -hmm. uh, and Definitely. In, in ways we couldn't before. For, for example, I, I, uh, one of the projects that we did before was the, a podcast about uh, the liberation of Holland. Mm -hmm. It's only in Dutch, so sadly. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, we, we did that, and I, uh, I was uh, doing research for, uh, to get sound uh, samples uh, uh, for, uh, that can be interesting to, uh, for, for to, to, listen to uh, listen to. And one of the things that I could use a lot is the U.S. archives. They, they also have uh, very, uh, some mm -hmm. good sound uh, images that I could use mm -hmm. uh, for now the podcast. You see, you an archival mission now is that just Dutch military then or is, are you connected in some way with your national archives as well yeah we are but uh, so, um, but mostly we're doing it uh, separately in that way yeah. Yeah, that, makes, that makes sense I think ours is more or less the same I think uh, the French one is, is more or less the same too yeah. um, so we we've we've kind of got an idea of what you do internally uh, one of the major differences I think between your country and ours is uh, you are part of organizations that you know in a future war will be a significant part of what you do. So how does what you do relate, for example, to NATO or to the German army for which you have a, a close relationship? Yeah, well, uh, to get back on the last one, uh, indeed we are in full in this pro process of more or less integrating the Dutch army and the uh, German army. So, for example, one brigade is, is attached to a German division, and there's another, uh, like, uh, uh, Dutch-German uh, company in that Dutch uh, uh, brigade. So, it's all intertwined uh, right now. Uh, and that also works for historians. I mean, uh, we uh, co collaborate a lot with the German historians as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we do quite a lot of um, uh, battlefield tours. Also for the Germans, and that's 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 a um, uh, that's also still kind of sub uh, sensitive subject. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, since the Germans uh, are kind of reluctant to look back on their uh, on their history, mm -hmm. uh, which of course I can't imagine. Uh, so once in a while, uh, German officers come to us and they're okay, well, it's not official, but can we go to Sedan? Uh, and uh, we don't wear uniforms, of course. And then we, can you teach us about uh, what what? But we're, we're, we were doing there actually, <laughs> yeah. um, because it's still still too too sensitive to uh, to dive in that too deep. But from our perspective, well, we can and we can b because we really emphasize on military lessons. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not about politics. I mean, we're a military institute, uh, so we don't dive into uh, what Hitler was doing and uh, all the things he that went went so bad back in the days. No, we we, we look at German commanders. How how did they do it? How how did they cross the Ardennes so fast? What was their logistical concept? Was what was their um, uh, what was their doctrine? Uh, that's the way how we look at it, and even Germans can learn from that. There's also big research going on now of Afghanistan, so our uh, involvement, but also of course in, uh, we did it uh, also uh, with German units, with Australian units, and so there's also that way a lot of uh, <coughs> working together. And um, also, uh, what we did is in the, uh, another podcast about uh, the, the UN, uh, the, the contributions to the United Nations uh, effort. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Dutch mission to Lebanon. Uh, you mentioned the day. one, uh, presumably alongside the French to the Sahel. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Minisma in Mali. So mm -hmm. uh, he went there. So th th that's also a large history within United of um, within international organization that uh, that they were. Especially, I should look if you look at modern day combat, modern yeah. day missions. Uh, there, w there was no single mission that the, that the U.S. Uh, the, that the uh, Dutch did on their own. Uh, 
No. It's all combined with other partner partners since our armies so became so small after mm-hmm. the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union uh, that the things we can do is only are only possible if we group together with Germany or with, indeed with France, France in the, in the Sahel. So therefore, um, also from an archival perspective and also research perspective, you got to do this. Uh, with, with, with your partners together. But so a follow-up to that and, and back to our theme of uncomfortable history. Um, <laughs> you mentioned, of course, that, that there are certainly tactical operational lessons, which we engage in as well. Um, but, for example, when we teach the 1941 campaign, the German invasion of the Soviet Union, one of the themes we talk about is how that that is part of, of the Holocaust mm-hmm. and how the 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 attack into the Soviet Union is not just about military goals, it's also about these extermination goals. Um, and of course that's true as well in, in places like the Netherlands. Um, so so how, do you, how do you approach that when, for example, you might be in a classroom with German historians or officers? Yeah, that's a good question because these are the, the real sensitive subjects you're talking here. If you, once you go to a more strategical level uh, and you talk about war aims, uh, uh, and you got Germans in your class, mm-hmm. uh, and we got quite a lot of them because it's starting to get intertwined more and more. Uh, it's all about openness. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I start teaching uh, and I address my German uh, colleagues in the, in, in the class, I say, if there's something you think I'm doing wrong or you're being offended by it, please say. Yeah. I mean, we in the Netherlands are, have a tendency to be overly direct. Yeah, blunt. Uh, <laughs> blunt. <laughs> Famously so, that. yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not that proud of it, but that's who we are. Uh, and that can, that can cross a line sometimes. Uh, but if, if, if you just address this and you just say, okay, I'm like this, uh, it might be uncomfortable, but please say if, it's, if, if I'm crossing a line here and uh, then I'll, I'll tone my voice a little. Uh, <laughs> right. It'll be fine. Right. Um, uh, so, you mentioned earlier that you spend a fair amount of time talking about the U.S. and Vietnam. Yeah. The same way we talk about Operation Barbarossa here in the U.S. Command and General Staff College. Does it help to have the distance? Does it help for you to look at the U.S. and Vietnam and the Vietnamese without it being your history so that you can ask the uncomfortable questions without worrying about who's in the room? Yeah. Well, I, I attended some classes in uh, about Vietnam this week, and I was actually quite um, uh, it was really, really good to see you guys that you 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 have this helicopter view now. Uh, Vietnam. I mean, we're all like in our thirties here, I guess maybe. Vietnam. I, mean, I wasn't born then. You guys were near forty. Uh, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we can cut it from we're we're podcast if you like. We're close. <laughs> we're close. <laughs> Uh, so um, uh, and I think the, the students here as well. I mean, they, they, they don't have like an active memory of what happened there. Um, uh, so maybe you guys reach the point that you can reflect on that history as well, because no active officers on duty were were, were participating in that war, and it makes it a lot easier to uh, to create some distance uh, from the subject. Mm-hmm. But of course, uh, we in the Netherlands, this is much bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But there's also this, this ever-growing fascination about the U.S. in the Netherlands. That has mm-hmm. always been there. Because yeah. um, uh, uh, we really look at the U.S. Uh, from a military perspective, but also from a political perspective. Um, uh, so so the, 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 the eagerness of to dive into Vietnam has always been there. Uh, 
but of course it's easy to talk about because you know uh, w we were not in that tough position you guys were in uh, that you had to make tough decisions uh, what to do back then mm -hmm. I mean it's an interesting challenge because uh, where I find the challenges is teaching Iraq mm. Served two tours there. Uh, okay. in, for, in fact, I joke, OIF-1, two the 2003 invasion was my first field problem in the Army, <laughs> uh, which, which makes it interesting. So uh, you kind of have to separate yourself from that. Now, the Dutch military doesn't have a lot of big wars to its credit, but you do have a, you have a fairly substantial overseas presence. So how do you uh, deal with your own veterans coming back and kind of processing their current uh, history in, uh, in their own experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we were in Iraq as well. We were in Afghanistan as well. Yeah. So we participated in most of the missions uh, you guys were in. Of course, on a way, way Small smaller scale than, uh, than mm -hmm. the U.S. Uh, but indeed, quite a lot of uh, veterans in the, in, in the Netherlands who have combat experience thanks to all these missions. Um, and it, it can be very helpful. Uh, because when I'm teaching those officers, I can I can ask them, hey, what were your experiences in Afghanistan? Does the theoretical concept I'm teaching does that anyway anyhow reflect on your uh, uh, experience? Um, but it can also be a little bit tough because they they all have their own perspective. Mm -hmm. For example, as a lieutenant back in the days, as a platoon commander, they now uh, in, in our class we're teaching have to have to zoom out and uh, look at from a way bigger distance and that can that can influence discussion as well because they have their own perspective uh, maybe as a platoon commander but it's not like the, the, the complete perspective of that mission um, so it works both ways we can we can use those people because they bring in a lot of experience a lot of uh, but also from a, from a research perspective a lot of material and uh, we can interview them mm -hmm. which things we are doing uh, in writing modern day combat, uh, modern day history, right. uh, but it can also hamper your lessons because uh, uh, well, things can get pretty emotional. Uh, we were winning well. when I left. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's <true>. yeah, that's <laughs> true. Well, let me expand on that and let's take that up a level. So, uh, with us, it, the U.S. for the last 20, 25 years has been, uh, you know, very accepting of military people and and themes and ideas and history. Although we fight about our own military history, mm -hmm. um, so what what is the role of of military history and the Dutch military in general, kind of in your society? Is it is it seen patriotically like it is in the U.S.? Is it kind of boxed up as it is in some countries in Europe? So, so how does that work? And, and uh, there's absolutely at this moment not really. And now maybe it's changing a little bit. But uh, military uh, history in the, in the normal day life, or military in general, is, is quite uh, is not really present in society. Dutch society, it's uh, you can really see how politicians talk about it. It's uh, yeah, the first uh, um, ministry that has to sacrifice in, in budget cuts is uh, mostly defense because yeah, people are not are not confronted with the military reality or maybe geopolitical uh, things uh, in the world. In Holland, because yeah, we're 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 uh, very central of north east of northwest of of Europe. We're kind of safe from everything, mm -hmm. and people in everyday life don't don't count it that much. Um, my brother served in Afghanistan. Um, he he came back, and and it's not that he walks around in uniform or or it's, it's really different because people are not are not feeling. Before now it's changing, but before it was even kind of uncomfortable like military things um, for example just to say something uh, like arms industry mm -hmm. 
that this uh, weapon industry is something, yeah, it's a dirty word, uh, people don't like it. Now it is changing because people start to wake up like, hey, wait a minute, we're not that safe. Mm -hmm. And the world is, uh, our safety is not guaranteed. Uh, mm -hmm. by, uh, so now it is changing, but it is, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not really a pleasant uh, topic to talk about military before. Uh, last mm -hmm. year, that, that definitely is... Yeah. Uh, Ukraine is really a watershed. Yeah, moment. absolutely. The invasion of Russia and Ukraine a year ago, yeah. that really changed a lot. Uh, not only when it comes to budget, but also from how society uh, looks at, uh, at our profession. Right. Um, uh, wearing uniform is, is okay again. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But also we see a lot of those uh, former generals or active uh, general generals on active duty from the Dutch army explaining what is happening in, uh, in Ukraine, but also explaining like really basic things, things like, why do you need a tank? Mm -hmm. Why do you need armor? Meaning, why do your your voters need to vote money for these things? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. taking that up a, up level even further, so we've talked kind of about how the military's role in the U.S. One of the challenges uh, military historians have is there aren't necessarily a lot of institutions which teach pure military history, or that's really the wrong term to use, but that really focus heavily upon military history. Do you find much the same problem over in the Netherlands? Um, how do you how do you hire new talent? Yeah, uh, we we have one master uh, education that is called military history, and that's it. Uh, of master uh, uh, in universities in Holland, and there's some naval uh, uh, of uh, 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 master programs, but they are also it's also included really broad topics. So uh, if, uh, if if you're talking about naval history. Uh, our, our great tra tradition, but most uh, topics are about slavery, or, or so it's not only military, it's mostly mm -hmm. one of the aspects, it's a niche uh, really much. Mm -hmm. So in that way, uh, yeah, I've, of course now, again, the, what, what Yao said, the watershed of, of last year, maybe now is going to change a bit, but there's not much uh, military history uh, being taught. So that must make, be a challenge, because as you said, you're, you cover quite a wide array of courses and also a, quite a, a wide array of students, all the way from younger students all the way up to a more senior. Yeah. So uh, that must be quite a, quite a teaching challenge. Yeah, it is actually. Uh, but I think one of the good things is that uh, a lot of uh, the lessons I learned are actually learned from colleagues by just looking at their lessons, fruitful discussions we have in our own institute. Uh, going to you guys has been a fruitful uh, experience, a learning experience for me as well. Uh, but to be honest, it's also just learning on the job. Uh, a, a lot of things uh, I learned in university of how to teach uh, history, I really had to transform that uh, uh, in a way that was suitable for the military. Because we're not training historians, mm -hmm. we're training of, uh, officers. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that is a kind of a mind shift that I had to make a few years ago, but it's something you learn on the job. Yeah, so we, we've, we've talked about a lot of very serious and interesting <coughs> things. I'm, I'm going to ask you some silly questions now. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what should listeners, particularly American listeners, know about your country that they meant not? Okay. Um, yeah. I think that's a good one. What is really important about Stroopwafel? Stroopwafel. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so explain <laughs> what, the, what the national snack of the Netherlands is. Yeah, the national snack is like uh, uh, Stroop is like a uh, sugarly layer, and then uh, it fit in between the waffles. Uh, uh, with the waffles. 
And the bad thing to eat them is just pour them on a on top of a cup of coffee, let the the, the smell of coffee uh, enter the waffle, and then and then you're good. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm happy to ship uh, some more uh, to, <laughs> to your institute if you uh, guys like it. And uh, and uh, the Netherlands uh, is bigger than Amsterdam, so please uh, visit some <laughs> other places. I too. quite disagree <laughs> with that. But, uh, <laughs> well, that led me to my next question. So so if somebody is interested in going to your country, what should they see? Uh, if, if they like uh, uh, military history, then definitely the, the parts that the U.S. military was involved in, in the, during the Second World War is in the south of Holland mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and more up to north to Nijmegen, mm -hmm. where the 82nd during Market Garden uh, yeah. division was 101. there. Yeah, yeah and, uh, 101. And, uh, um, but also in the south, for example, uh, which I think is quite funny, is uh, the, the most southern city of Holland is Maastricht. Yep. And um, uh, as early modern, uh, you know way more, uh, th yep. there's more history to that. Siege but in 1748. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the headquarters of the U.S. 9th Army. In yeah, World exactly. Yeah. Operation yeah. Grenade. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's very interesting. But also this kind of funny, uh, uh, when I was doing the podcast about the liberation of Holland, is... Uh, there's a kind of, uh, an, an, yeah, how you say it, a uh, twist along some, some uh, villages on the border with, with Belgium of who got liberated first by, by American, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think it's the uh, Old Hickory Division, that is, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Thir 30th Infantry. Thir yeah, yeah, right. And, uh. and, uh, and so they have, this, they have some villages say, like, we were the first, and the other one, that we were yeah, the first. Right. <laughs> fighting so, over. Yeah. Still fighting <laughs> over. So th th there's quite a history there for, uh, and especially Maastricht, uh, what you said, the headquarters were there for a while. And uh, uh, so in that way, I would definitely recommend the most southern uh, province uh, of, uh, of Holland. For, uh, and go to Margrate. Margrate, there's a cemetery there of mm -hmm. uh, US personnel. Yeah. But I would also say go to uh, Skelter Estuary in, uh, in Zealand. Yeah, Zealand. Uh, there's no US history, Canadians and, uh, and the British were there. But from an operational perspective, uh, and when, you, when you talk about logistics and you talk about the liberation of, uh, of, of, of Germany and the role the harbor of Antwerp uh, played in, in that whole scheme, uh, it's really interesting to look at the, at the Battle of the Skeld, uh, how they liberated the, the, the Skeld estuary in order to free up the, uh, the, the river leading to, uh, towards Antwerp. And the battle that took place there, uh, which lasted for a couple of weeks, was really intense. Um, I, I, I looked at diaries from Canadian officers, and they were also participating in World War One, and they even said this fight here in, in between the dikes in the polder area, the swampy area there, uh, really reminds me of the dirt of uh, of, of Belgium uh, back in the First World War. It was even harsher. Mm -hmm. How many of those battlefields are still preserved or uh, maintained in a way that you would recognize them from looking at the battles? Skeld Estuary is really, really not much that has changed there. Walker and uh, Ireland. Is it Walker? Yeah, Walker, Walker and Ireland, yeah. yeah. Walker and, uh, uh, has been indigenated. In, in uh, I mean, that's all dried up, but uh, uh, the whole island is basically not much has changed since, uh, since, uh, since World War II. But I would also really rec recommend go to... Uh, um, uh, 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 in Maastricht, in Maastricht yeah, yeah. and Nijmegen, uh, Nijmegen, of course, yeah, and Eindhoven. Yeah, Eindhoven. Well, well, let's yeah. also not forget yeah. this: uh, that your country was the center of European art for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful museums, <laughs> right. Northern Renaissance. Yeah, there yeah. we go, Amsterdam again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, definitely go to the Rijksmuseum. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. it's it's a, it's a treasury mm -hmm. uh, to go there. I actually, when it opened up. 
uh, again after like seven years of renovation I was finally able to go there I spent literally two days there mm -hmm. uh, of course as a historian you take, right. you take your time yep. yeah, but you uh, also from a military perspective the things that are on display there are are amazing uh, weapons, uh, shields, um, model uh, of ships uh, dating back in the, from the 17th century. It's really great to see. Yeah, definitely, yeah. but also if you are, for example, uh, I live in a little village outside Utrecht, and uh, a little bit north of us there's Brooklyn, mm -hmm. so Brooklyn, and uh, so there's all these little villages. And if you're uh, all around the United States, there are of course some Dutch colonies and mm -hmm. some Dutch town names, so including well, New York. Right, exactly. It was so originally New, New Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And but yeah. also many, many of those uh, uh, neighborhoods, uh, Brooklyn, yep. Brooklyn, yep. Uh, Harlem, Harlem, yep. uh, Flushing is Flissingen. So Roosevelt is a Dutch name. Right. Yeah, exactly. Come out to West Michigan sometime. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that, exactly. Yeah. There's <laughs> many. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, thank you for being here, and thank you for being with us. Thank you yeah, for having thank you us. very much. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.